The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we ask you confidently because you have opened up the, the access to the throne room and you have told us to come. You've told us to come and ask you for grace and mercy in, in our time of need and so we can confidently ask you, will you meet us and give us what is needed now at this moment to understand this passage, to, to understand afresh what we already know and to, to revel in that that you are a God who has come near to save and that that worked. Make that fresh and clear to us this morning, please, Father. And in so doing, would you grow us up? Would you grow us up into what you mean us to be, the, the image of your Son? You, that's what maturity is, that we would be Christ-like, like him. You showed us what that looked like for those of us who had eyes to see it in the scriptures, and, and he is pressing that into us by his spirit. And that's your work, do you now? You want, you want to grow us up. Those of us in this room who know you, you want it to mature us, and so please accomplish some of that this morning. Make this passage alive for us, and and build us up even in this, this somewhat odd setting. Speak, Father, by your Spirit, and conform us to the Son. And in so doing, bring glory to yourself. That's what we ask you to do this morning. Thank you. Amen. Today on this Christmas morning, we turn our attention to the book of Hebrews, and we do so in order to give us a fresh perspective on the incarnation. A coming of God, the Son, in flesh, incarnate, incarnation. That's what we're about this morning. That's the miracle at the heart of Christmas, that God the Son, who is spirit and has no body like we do, took on one, became a human, and came near to us. This is the God who, who is alone, who alone dwells in unapproachable light and approached us and was born on an otherwise ordinary night. You know the story. It was just a night. It wasn't, it's kind of odd to think about it. It wasn't Christmas. It was Tuesday, or whatever day it was. It was just some night in Bethlehem. And on that night, in that little town in the middle of nowhere, angels sang from heaven and shepherds raced to the town to see a child born to a young, unwed virgin and her fiancé. A remarkable, miraculous birth, followed a miraculous conception that God the Holy Spirit nine months before had acted in power to create in this girl, to create a baby. And now here nine months later, he's born, comes into the world in a cattle stall, a humble place because there was no room for them in the inn. That's his humble human beginnings. That's the story. And it is remarkable in itself, of course. 
And there is much about that story that, that draws our attention, but it is not ultimately meaningful in and of itself. It, it has to be considered in the context of the larger story. There, if you look only at what the events are of last night that we, that we celebrate last night and today, if, if we look at just that, we see in it a lot of remarkable things about God drawing near, about God becoming a person to share in, in our troubles, to, to know our sorrows and temptations, and, and to be intimate, to be familiar with us. There's, there's much in that about love, much in that about sensitivity and care, but it's only in that larger context that we see what that all was for, and that's what we're going to consider this morning from the book of Hebrews. It's going to take us to chapter 10 in Hebrews, and by the time we get to chapter 10, we have seen, if we'd been following through all of the book, we, we've seen much Old Testament a whole bunch of Old Testament things, whether it be people or families or practices or, or buildings even or ideas. We've seen many things from the Old Testament that have been met, matched, and exceeded by Jesus. That's been kind of the theme throughout this book. Jesus is better than. He's an improvement on. And we could think of covenant and temple and priesthood, all those things that Jesus met, matched, and then exceeded, and, and therefore kind of finished, polished off. And the same can be said of sacrifices. Sacrifices are all over the Old Testament, and here Jesus is going to be seen this morning as the one who met, matched, and finished the sacrifices. That's what brings us to Hebrews 10, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, though I'm only going to be really focusing on, on 5 through 10. But, but 1 through 4 includes some things we need to see. So I'm going to read that, and we'll touch on it briefly. But I'm going to be drawing out two observations from verses 5 to 10. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10. Two observations, one that relates 
more to God and what, what, what God is up to, what it says about God, what it shows us about God, and then the second one, more about what that means for us. Here's the first. Behold the will of God, Christ born to be the successful sacrifice. Talks about the will of God in here. Behold the will of God, Christ born to be the successful sacrifice. Verse 5 begins with the word consequently, or maybe your version says therefore. So what follows our passage, 5 to 10, is because of or a consequence of what was just said. So what we have is, verse 5 says, Christ came into the world saying the following, and that's because of what's in verses 1 to 4. So what's in verses 1 to 4? If we glance back, what we see there is the law of God given by Moses. God through Moses gave the law. And it describes and prescribes all sorts of sacrifices. You see them all listed there. Mentioned a couple more times in 5 and 6 and then down in verse 8. And it's according to the law. As verse 8 says, they are offered according to the law. Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. All a little bit different. Offered at different times. But they all form a a big system. And if you were to say, what's at the top of that? the, the, The peak, the pinnacle of that system is the blood of bulls and goats or other animals. For scapegoats, there are also sacrificial lambs. The blood of bulls and goats at the top dealing with sin. The sin problem that humans in our sin have before a holy God. That was the heart of the religious life of ancient Israel, the Old Testament. And it was commanded, but, verse 2, it never really worked. Otherwise, if, if it had have worked, would they not, the question, the rhetorical question, would they not have no longer been offered? Would they have stopped offering them? The sacrifices didn't, though, actually fix or heal. They didn't make perfect the worshiper. And in fact, they were just a reminder of sin, not a solution to it. Verse 4, because it is impossible the blood of animals to take away human sin. So, consequently, Christ came as a human. You see the logic there. This doesn't work. It's actually, it's purposeful, it's intentional. God's laying out some, some logic here. There, it, there's, there's a purpose, there's an intention in the, the sacrifices. They, they, have a, they have a reason. They they put off and they serve to remind us of and to, and to hint at what a solution would look like. But they don't actually deal with it. If, if I, for instance, am told I have a problem, let's say somebody tells me I have a health problem for which I have to take a pill every day for the rest of my life. If in giving me that prescription, a doctor or a pharmacist perhaps would say something offhand like, you know, no problem, just take one of these every day and you know, they'll take care of it. I would realize, technically, nothing's being taken care of. Nothing's being solved. It's just put off. It's postponed. I, I realize every time I open the pill bottle, I have a problem without which this, without, with, without this pill, I'm going to be afflicted in some way. I can't stop taking it. I'm not fixed. I'm okay for today until tomorrow's pill. And then I'm okay until the next day's pill. 
So there's a reminder in every opening of the bottle. There's a reminder of sin, and there's an evidence of something in this pill fixes me, but it doesn't actually fix me because I've got to do it again and again and again and again. I have a, a persistent abiding problem. This is no fix. It's no cure. It's just treatment. Nothing's put away. It's just put off. And that's what God's intending in, in those sacrifices in the Old Testament. He's putting off, not putting away. He, he's, he's postponing the consequence of and, and showing us something in this would be the fix, but it isn't itself the fix. There's a payment required by God for our sin. And he commanded that animals be put to death as payment for people's sin. That's his first way of addressing this problem, but it doesn't actually deal with it. It doesn't actually heal. It just reminds us of the need for healing and puts it off for another day because the blood of animals cannot take away human sin. And therefore, verse 5, Christ came as a human, came into the world saying, these sacrifices, though you commanded them for a purpose, as we've just seen, you took no pleasure in them. You didn't actually delight in them. So you gave me a body. You prepared a body for me. There's God the Son, Christ, prepared a body as an alternative to the animal bodies prepared and then sacrificed for centuries. Christ comes knowing that's his purpose. It's foretold in the Old Testament. What we see here is a, is a quote from a prophetic psalm, Psalm 40. And he says at the end of verse 7, it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He knew this, and he could show it to us from, from many places in the Old Testament. As he did, we're going to see this eventually in the, in the Gospel of Luke, as he walked the road to Emmaus, he, he pointed out to his disciples there, from Moses on through the prophets, how the Christ must suffer. It's in the text. It was always there. This isn't plan B. It's written in the book. This is the second way, the successful way, that God intends to deal with sin. And that's the purpose of giving him a body. And really, we, we, can, we can cleanly say that the, the point of incarnation is crucifixion. That's, that's what's going on. It's why he has a human body. Verse 8, in saying, and, and he wants to prove that to us, he wants to prove that the, that the first and the second are, are not in, in perpetual competition, but they are first and then second laid on top of it, finishing it off. And he says, we, we recognize this in reading the Old Testament, that we say the first is there and then the second is also there. And in saying, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He then says, behold, I have come to do your will. This is the will of God, that Christ would come and abolish the first and establish the second. This is the sacrifice in which God takes delight. This is the sacrifice with which he is pleased. Why is he pleased? A couple things to think about here. First, he's pleased 
Because it works. It actually does. Uh, on the other side of this sacrifice, it is a once for all, very last phrase, verse 10. It is a once for all sacrifice, which does not mean once for everybody on earth. It means once for all in contrast to the verse 2, verse 1, continually offered every year. Here are the priests here on behalf of the people bringing in the sacrifice and then bringing in the sacrifice and bringing in the sacrifice. And for this sin, there's that sacrifice. For this sin, there's that sacrifice. For these ones over here, there's this kind of sacrifice. On this day, there are these ones and these ones. And in contrast to that is once for all. Here's one sacrifice for all of your sins, past, present, and future. It's done. And that is of great delight to God. Sin is finished. Sin is, is actually dealt with. Which means we, as we're going to see in the second point, which means we are effectively fixed, healed, not just put off, postponed. So that, that gives great delight to God. But we need to move on one step further past that. Why does that give delight to God? Because of God, what God is aiming to do all along. What God's after is a creation. This is from the very beginning. What God is after is a creation that is filled from one end to the other with the glory of the Lord, with righteousness and justice. He is after a kingdom that is perfect. And what this sacrifice accomplishes is God's big goal. Not just the, the healing of people, but the, the fixing of a kingdom, of a place. It's the elimination of sin and the establishing of a people who will be like him. God is greatly delighted in that. And in fact, it does it in a way that answers a, a centuries and an age-old problem. You can think of this from Romans 3. Forever past, there were people that God said, this one is mine, that one is mine, these ones are mine. And if you could picture this, in a heavenly courtroom, there would be an accuser who would say, no way! David? No way! This one, I, I love this one. This one is mine. I, I claim him for myself. The adulterer and murderer, David? You claim him for yourself? Really? You unjust, wicked God, you? Do you see that, that courtroom scene there? And for a moment, a centuries-long moment, God takes that, you wicked, unjust God, you, and says, I'm going to put a, a blood of bulls and goats on that. And <laughs> No, you're not. That doesn't work. I'm going to put it on there. The accusation stands. It, it, the arrow is still stuck in God's heart, if you will. For a moment that lasts for centuries. Because there is this, this abiding question. Here is God declaring a wicked man just. Which makes God wicked and unjust. And you cannot slap the blood of an animal on that and call it good. The blood of Uriah calls out from the grave. That's unjust. Bathsheba taking advantage of Christ. That's unjust. You can't do that. God says, okay, okay. Let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. 
is the argument of Romans 3, until he finally says, I offer a sacrifice that actually takes care of that problem. I offer up eternal payment for it. I offer up my son. I prepare for him a body. And I put him under the condemnation that David deserves and that you deserve. So he's pleased because it, it provides forgiveness for people. And he's pleased because it creates a world that is what he was always after, a righteous and just world. And it does it in a righteous and just way that vindicates God before all accusers. Look, I have successfully actually dealt with wickedness. I have condemned my own son in the place of people. A human died for humans. Not an animal, a human did. And then finally he is pleased because the attitude with which that human went to the cross in perfect submission to his father. Humbly, not regarding equality with God as something to be grasped, but saying, okay, Father, I see your goal to, to redeem people and to create a world that is right and to vindicate your justice, and I am completely down with that. He is zealous for the honor of God and zealous for the, the justice of God and for the reputation of God and in love of the people of God. He says, I will take the cross. I will take on a body. I will submit myself to these people and even to death on a cross in zeal for the glory of the Lord. And the Father looks on all of this and says, I am well pleased with that. A non-sentient bull being sacrificed doesn't do anything to accomplish any of that. But God the Son becoming flesh does. This is the delight of the Father. His wrath is removed and his glory is, is lifted up, is exalted in, in this one coming as a man, willingly so, and going to the cross, willingly so. And so ultimately, what, what, we, what we come to here at the end of this first point, this is God's will. Jesus says here, quoted, applied to Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is what God willed. This is what Christmas is about, and we should pause there and say, huh, that's not exactly about me. It isn't. First and foremost, Christmas is about God. And the fact that that doesn't really occur to us tells us something about us and how centered on ourselves we are. Christmas is about God. It is about God fixing God's creation that was broken by an enemy of God and God saying, I win. I put you down and I lift myself up and I do it in an incredibly powerful and an incredibly wise and an incredibly gracious and merciful way. Christmas is about the vindication of God's glory. And... Bless God, our deliverance. Do you realize how remarkable it is that those two things are the same? That the vindication, the, the, the lifting up of God's glory and the lifting up of the delivering of me are not two separate things but actually coincide. 
That need not be. That need not be. But it is, and that is an awesome thing. So I say, behold the will of God. Christ offered as a sacrifice, so here's the second. Behold the will of God. Sanctification accomplished and given to us as a gift. This is the second observation. Behold the will of God. Sanctification accomplished and given to us as a gift. I draw this primarily from verses 9 and 10. It is the effect, it's what comes out of, for us from the first observation, the effect of, of all the verses flowing down to it about the sacrifices and, and Christ coming with the body. It, here's what happens for us. Christ comes into the world in the flesh. Behold, I have come to do your will. Verse 10, then, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified. Who's he talking to? Who's the we? He's talking to the church. We is not the world at large. We is the church. We is, put it another way, God's people. God has always known his people. We, we discover it century by century, day by day, as we find people who trust Christ, come to him, and are saved. We, we discover what God has always known. This is the people of God. He's talking about the people of God. That's we. And we have been sanctified. That's already done by God, not by us. The grammar is really clear. You can even see it in English. I think all English translations make this extremely clear. Have been sanctified. That's something that's already over, and it's passive. Done for us, not by us. And not being done now, day by day. He's talking about sanctification in the sense of done deal. There is, we'll talk about shortly, there is a sanctification in an ongoing sense, but he's talking about sanctification accomplished. That word, it's a religious word, which we don't, I don't think, use in any other context, but it, at its heart, it's very similar to the word holy, to be set apart, to be set apart from one thing, in this case, from the world to God claimed by him, made right in his eyes, owned by him, adopted by him. These are all related concepts. It's happened already. The old sacrifices could not accomplish it. They had to be offered again and again and again and again, indicating that nothing was ever actually done. But this one being offered one time shows us finished done. We have been set apart to God, claimed by him. This is the, the salvation for us that God planned, and then God executed in sending Christ, and then now has applied to one after one after one down through centuries, even down reaching to us. 
We are made perfect. It is accomplished. And so we are clean and pure in God's sight, we who believe. We stand before him because of this sacrifice forgiven. We who believe. Do you know this forgiveness? Even though we're only a small group, I still don't know everybody here, and, and I don't know everything about everybody here. So I simply put in front of you, what, what's offered here is an incredible offer, but is not, is not an automatic universal offer. It doesn't come to you by virtue of being born. And it doesn't come to you by virtue of being an American or anything else. It comes to a person when that person trusts Christ alone, this sacrifice alone, to pay for your sin. So do you know this forgiveness? You must know this forgiveness. It is not only an incredible offer, it's an offer that you can't refuse. Because there is a time coming when before this great God, we will all stand and give an account. There is an end. The book of Hebrews also says, we could look ahead a little bit and see, it is appointed for man to once die and then face judgment. That's what's appointed for all of us. And at that time, there will be one grand question asked. What are you putting over your sin to cover it? And the sacrifices of the Old Testament are no more. And the sacrifices that we may be inclined to offer with our own lives, my, my own efforts and, and everything that religion throws towards me and says, do this and do this and do this and do this. Behave in this way and offer up this and talk like that and, and don't do and do do. All of that does not work. There is only a single, there is one sacrifice with which God is pleased. And it is the blood of this, his son. And so at that point that it is appointed for you to die and then to face judgment, the question put to you, what do you put over your sin? The only answer acceptable is Jesus' death. I trust him. So do, you know, do you know this? Do you know this forgiveness? You are invited always, in every day that is called today, you are invited today to turn to Jesus and trust him and find that forgiveness. What you find there is that this sacrifice was offered for me too. And this sanctification that was accomplished, it was accomplished for me. I didn't know that until, until now in faith I am brought to life again and I find it. You can find it. Trust Christ alone. You're invited to do that. And that would be a great gift to receive on Christmas. Liberation from sin and judgment. And in that, there is also a liberation, a freedom from the treadmill of works. Think about this. This is how religious life works. And 
I say religious, not to exempt from it other life. We are, we human beings, every single one of us, we are unfailably, infallibly, unfailingly, unfailingly religious people, beings. We in ourselves sense and cannot get away from the fact that there is a being over us and we ain't him. And we have to somehow make right with him. And there are 10,000 religions in the world that all offer up some way or another to do that some official codified way. But even when not following some official codified way, we all live in some way where we have some perception on this is how I should be. This is what would make me a good person. This is what will give me some, some I, I guess it will make me all right with the man upstairs. That's humanity. Even when not officially at his or her religious practice, we live trying to be good and trying to be right. And here is an an offer of freedom from that treadmill. We have a first way, a way of offering up sacrifice. And in this particular context, it's the, the blood of animals. Sometimes it could, be, it could be grain offered or, or wine offered in, in other pieces of that sacrificial system. And in our modern world, we often don't offer up like animals, although some, some places do, certainly. But we offer up our, our attitudes and our behaviors and our, our gifts to charity, our performance at church. And what this passage says, if you follow it, is none of that works None of that works. So not only don't do it, but feel free to not do it. There's a freedom there. This this sacrifice offered, this this Jesus sacrifice offered, proves to us that, that religion and all of our efforts to try to be right and be good doesn't work and isn't wanted. If it did work, Jesus would never have been offered up as a sacrifice. There would have been no need for him. If it eventually would have worked, if there would have been a way to put it all together, God the Son would not have become flesh and gone to the cross. But he did because it didn't. And it still doesn't. So nothing that we are, nothing that we can ever do, nothing that's called for from us by the religions of the world can ever accomplish anything anything to make us right before God. Now, are some of those things good to do? Of course, sure. I'm not ever going to tell you not to be a good person. But I am going to tell you that that doesn't cut the mustard with God. Because in God's eyes, there are no good people. That may sound like bad news, but in fact, it's good news. It's a freedom from attempting to be good and working hard to be better. He says, forget it. Trust me. And find in me the accomplished sanctification. I have made you mine. I've cleaned you. I've set you apart already. Find that. And Christian, find that. Because it may have seemed that I was talking about a non-Christian. I'm actually talking about me and you, Christians. 
we, and, and understand this is not a condemnation, this is a, this is a sorrow. We, Christians, do you believe the gospel? Yeah, for sure you believe the gospel. But Christian, so often we live, we have a strong impulse in us. We, we live in a still struggling with this way of thinking that I must do to be pleasing to God. And if I don't do, I'm not pleasing. Or if I do a little less, I'm less pleasing. He's not inclined to smile on me. He's not inclined to favor me. He's not inclined to love me because, I mean, if you were at my house last night and you saw what I did, or at least what I did in my mind, like God did, you wouldn't approve of me. How many times do we think that, Christian? Often. And the freedom from that religious impulse, the freedom from it says, have been sanctified. You stand already done in this spot, in this position before God. He views you as clean. He views you as holy, as set apart to him, claimed by him, his, his beloved child. The access to his throne room is wide open, not shut up when you screw up. And I'm not sure if I should say that in, in the pulpit or not, but that's what you say in your head, isn't it? It's not shut up when we mess up. The throne room's door is open to, his, to you, his beloved child, because you have been sanctified. And certainly what comes from that is a new life in which you are being sanctified. That's, that's the sense in which the, there is a life of change, a life in which he is working, a a change of me and of you so that we become more like him. A new life certainly follows. But it's a life that is driven by the certainty, by the, by the freedom of I don't have to work because you have so deeply and widely and, and long and, and thoroughly loved me. I don't have to work for that or, or achieve it or acquire it or hold on to it desperately. It's mine. I'm yours. And with that comes the certainty that he remains yours on forever. And when we stand in that kind of position, take God out of this, when we stand in that kind of position with anything, with anybody, what comes of that is a relief from fear and a faith, love, hope-driven following. Think of a marriage. If, if you're married or if you've seen a good marriage, you can imagine this. There is a type of attention that a, one spouse gives to another when fearing that spouse's anger or fearing that spouse's divorce threat. I've seen this in a, a bunch of places. Wife says, I want a divorce, and husband is suddenly a great husband. Is that how you want to live? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Everybody around that knows this is really tough. And his doting attention to her is hollow. It's coerced. It's not real. And it's very tense. 
And then on the other hand, there is a type of doting attention and a type of, of love and a type of following and a type of service that comes from I love you and you love me and we are an us. That has been accomplished in the past. It's not going anywhere. And from that, I know there's, there's a life here. That's a totally, totally different marriage. Now, can that kind of marriage ever grow stale and go wrong? Oh, sure, of course. We're, we're people. We're fallen, sinful people. God's not a fallen, sinful person. He keeps pouring new energy. He keeps pouring new love into that. And as his kindness falls onto us, that's what leads us into repentance and leads us to follow him. A new life certainly comes from this established you have been sanctified. And the fact that you have been sanctified tells you how to interpret everything that happens as you're walking in this new life. It, it tells you how to interpret the circumstances of your life. The non-Christian cannot rest in the circumstances of life because the wrath of God hangs over him or her and that person by him or herself walks into an evil world unguarded. Not true of you, you who have been sanctified. There is no wrath from God that remains on you at all, and you walk into a world that is certainly troubled and will be troubling, and you walk into it with a God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and everything that happens to you comes through my fingers, determined by me to do you good. You know how to interpret every circumstance that happens to you, and you can walk into them in hope, in joy even, even if you have to sorrow in them because they are really hard and really painful as life is here in this fallen world. But you know that what you are experiencing is not wrath and is not destruction, but it comes to the hands of a God who reigns over all and has promised to be with you and to always do you good in this and in all things. And so you know that all of life because you have been sanctified and you have been given a new life and you can interpret all the circumstances as God's intention to do you good in them, you know that everything that happens to you is, is completely meaningful and real. It is his will to send the Son with the body to be sacrificed so as to establish his kingdom, to fix all of this earth, to vindicate his glory and to bring you into it as sons and daughters, heirs with him. It's all meaningful. And everything that happens to you is attaining for you some measure of glory. How, when, where, I don't know. But the Bible promises it to you, his sanctified one. Of a measure of glory that far outweighs all of the light and momentary troubles that you have here. So you can walk in life not losing heart, but in fact taking heart and rejoicing even while sorrowing. Christmas is ultimately about God. And in all of those ways is also about us. And all of those ways are marvelous for you. The gift that he has given to you in giving you this son in a body to be sacrificed, to accomplish for you sanctification, to accomplish it for you, to set you apart to himself, you are forgiven. 
You are, you are owned and possessed and protected. You have a, a meaning in life. You have a God to walk with in life. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's a God who is good. And what he has done is, is good in an exceeding, abundant, far-surpassing way. We, we speak a little bit of it this morning. We will, we will continue to unwrap this present for eternity as he reveals to us the glory of his grace in the ages that are to come. We have some measure of this gift now, and it will be continually given and given and given and given forever. It's a great gift and cause for rejoicing on this or on any day. Let me pray. Father, bless your name. Bless your name that you were determined and wise and powerful in the cleaning of your, your kingdom and the cleaning of your world and the cleaning of your name and in the cleaning of us, your people. Thank you for doing that and for giving it to us. And now send us out of here a happy and rejoicing people. Thank you for the gift you give us that we celebrate this day, the gift of the Son incarnate. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.